0: Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sustainability Podcast brought to you by Newfields Environmental Consultants. I'm your host, Richard Williams, and this episode is the second part of a discussion that I had with Billy Hall, the founder and chairman of Newfields, on his creation of the Beyond Sustainability Initiative and his ideas for holistic approaches to land remediation. If you hadn't or if you haven't already listened to part one, You can find that part right now on whatever platform you're using to listen to your podcasts. If you have, I hope you enjoyed that part. Welcome to part two. And I hope you enjoy this one. Enjoy. What would you say to people who would argue that by not by by dealing dealing with a site on a risk based approach, you are not actually addressing the contamination and you are merely as you said earlier, you are just moving the problem on. You're not. You're not. You're not solving the problem. You're just sort of.
1: Well, what? Anyway uh, doing uh, it. And what my response to that is, and this is in the context, I've worked on about a hundred federal Superfund sites. And total, I've worked on probably two thousand sites worldwide in about seventy different countries. And of all the sites that I've worked on, there is a small handful. The the ones that have have reached closure are all the ones in which there was it was determined that we can fully protect receptors that the conditions are stable. We can fully protect receptors because there's really only three ways. And when once you've dealt with the direct contact with soils, which you can do with a variety of just land reuse procedures, but with the groundwater, it's either vapor intrusion, uh, material coming off of the groundwater. Through the soil as vapor into buildings, uh, migration into a drinking water well, or migration into a receptor, into a uh, ecological receptor. Virtually every site is stable. There, there, there are there are new sites. I mean, I've, I've got two sites that just started last week. One was a huge uh, petroleum spill. Okay, that's you know that that's an active release, and another is a facility. It's a biofuels facility that has a sludge issue. Um, so those those are new, you know, those aren't stable. Okay, so that's an emergency response. But I'm dealing, I'm talking about the large number of sites that have been around for 50, 60, you know, a, lot, a lot of these sites go back to World War II, uh, that we're, we're dealing with the real explosion of our uh, modern industrial society. So the conditions, we can know whether they're stable or not, whether we can control it. The Risk-based approach is that that could, that could be applied at these is uh, dealing with the pathway, making sure the pathway and that the material that's there, demonstrating that it is it is not going to continue to create a problem.
0: You mentioned you know modern day spills as well as 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 older sort of legacy contamination. Just out of interest, the number of sites that are being remediated annually does that exceed the number of sites being contaminated annually are we at a point where we're slowly reducing the amount of sites that have contamination issues or are we just creating new ones as quickly as we are remediating them
1: we are advancing i think we have reached a point where for a very large percentage if not the overwhelming majority of the long-running legacy sites we have long since passed the point of diminishing returns that we're spend that we're actually making things worse. On on the not not for that site specific, you know, it's not like we're creating more solvent in the groundwater or more petroleum in the groundwater, but the effort and the ancillary and unintended consequences of what we're doing, my my data uh, is that we're we're not really improving the environment of, the, of those sites. That where we do improve things quite dramatically is, is in the brownfields type programs where we are getting property back into use and turning them back into economic use and recognizing that we don't need to continue to invest resources in, a, in folly in trying to clean groundwater up to a drinking water standard, for example.
0: The reason you're saying that some of the sites don't work is because of the unintended quotes uh, you know um, unintended consequences of implementing remediation strategies like co2 production various other emissions and things like that which come along with sort of direct
1: engineering exactly the let's take a an example a a refinery operated from the early uh, 1900s Uh, they Figured that over the years they probably lost forty million gallons of product. They've got an apple, an apple up to several feet across the site. So they like floating re- oil in the ground. Maybe floating oil, down. yeah. Flo- floating cool. oil on top of the ground. They've removed maybe fifteen million, so there's probably another twenty-five million, and each year they're removing now they're down to maybe hundred thousand gallons a year. Now of groundwater that is so no that's they 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 probably have 25 million gallons of petroleum ah, still okay. floating on top of the water and they're removing about uh 100 uh 100,000 not 100 million 100,000 gallons a year but they're pumping probably 25 million to 30 million gallons of water so they're not going and the the rate at which they're able to get this NAPL out is decreasing now the NAPL is down in a uh, the water table is in a, in a very difficult material to extract things from. It's a clay material, and that's going to p- continue to decline. So essentially, the, they're never going to get it out. It's, it's never going to come out. But to create the conditions that allow them to extract that, they are, they're having to remove huge volumes of water. Now, this water that they're removing... It's, they're pulling water in that's currently clean that's having to move across the contaminated area. They pump it out, they treat it, and then they throw it into the ocean. So, in the, they're removing NAPL. So, well, we've got to do this because the state demands that we remove NAPL. But, you know, the, the, the reality that it's difficult to get people to recognize, you're never going to get the NAPL out of there, not by pumping it out. This is a 1990s approach to dealing with the problem when the plume is stable i mean it's not going anywhere it's been there since 1910 and it's it's not it's not like we have any surprises out there we know where it's going to be we are creating huge carbon emissions by doing this we're contaminating a huge volume of fresh water that gets contaminated by by having to pull it across this area of the plume to create the draw to get this naple into the wells, and then we're throwing it away into the ocean. Whereas if we just stopped, just stopped doing it and verify that it's stable, that we don't have a vapor intrusion, the net impact is a benefit to stop having this wasted effort and then realize, because we we do we are moving into a new era of a new set of tools that really weren't available to us um up until the last the, uh, the last few years so just to put up what you said
0: as well that they're, they're pumping out all this water they're treating this napple and then by dumping it in the ocean you're basically losing any any clean water you've got there because it's becoming um saline straight away you're just adding it to salt water, and then if you wanted to get that water back, you'd have to desalinate. Salinate. Yeah,
1: you're, you're, that's correct. It's, it's it's a net loss. Is it yeah. really
0: is a net loss, isn't it? Yeah.
1: So, in terms
0: of um, looking towards a the future, then, where do you see the environment or the remediation industry moving? Where, where, how do we sort of advance past this uh, past this stage?
1: We have, I think we we can get some inspiration of what just happened with the pandemic and the creation of vaccines what was what we saw with that is our ability to understand the dna makeup of a, a particular element of our ecosystem It's what it's what we did with understanding the makeup of the coronavirus and then customizing a design to respond to it There's a parallel to that. It's not not exactly the same, but there's certainly a parallel to that that's available to us as we we try to grapple with what is our real problem. Our our real problem is dealing with these meta-environmental resiliency necessities. And it's around climate change, but it's so broad because climate change deals with how do we get the most value or improvement out of our expenditure of resources how can we look at every aspect of the way we engage in our management of our interaction with our environment in a way that works the way ecosystems work in which we energy is conserved to the maximum extent possible that there in nature there is no waste creatures have, or every element of an ecosystem have to be working very effectively or they they don't make it you know they have uh, the system stays in balance through the push and pull of natural selection well our ability to understand the reason i, I reference the pandemic is our ability to understand what's happening at the molecular le- or at the the gene level opens up a whole new family of tools for us it's in the context that we have viewed the subsurface as this sterile environment. It's just rock. Well, it's not. It is a dynamic living ecosystem and understand the ability to understand what are the players in that ecosystem, which we can do now with metagenomic analysis uh, very inexpensively and find out any any site that's been there, if, if if it's got petroleum in it, there are bugs there that will eat that. So changing our whole mindset that it's not us cleaning something up but it's us determining what component of the natural ecosystem can we nudge can we enhance for nature to do this job and in the meantime what we're doing is controlling the measurable adverse consequences that may be occurring at the boundaries of a of a problem either through boundaries at the surface through a human exposure or through a groundwater exposure so we have um, that a whole new world has opened up for us to understand that these are living ecosystems in the subsurface that we can understand we can quantify and the academic research has advanced um, dramatically over the last 10 years on what are the characteristics of different microbial populations And which ones can we actually target and customize? Can we design specifically for different types of contamination that we can let nature do our work? And with the goal being, we want to control the boundary conditions. We want to use a risk-based approach in which we're controlling the boundary conditions. But we then want to maximize the ability to nudge nature and let nature do the work. And we only come in with our intensive engineered interventions when that is needed to control a threshold, to get to a threshold condition that the natural ecosystem needs. Uh, that, and and that, that will still be needed, the, the engineers and the intensive systems. But a lot of the intensive things we do, like we come in and zap a groundwater solvent plume with ChemOx, well, we probably just destroyed the microbial population. And it's why every time we do ChemOx, you wait a year and it all rebounds. Uh, so that, that's the kind of example that we are, we're using We don't need to continue to use crude sledgehammer approaches. We can be much more finessed in the approach that we use. And not only is it going to be more effective, it's going to be much, much more net beneficial for the meta-environmental issues that we face with all these consequences that we're facing around climate change and the huge consequences that's having across all sectors of our relationship to the resources that we need from agriculture to our economies to the water supply you know that needs to be our focus is how can we deal with these legacy problems but much more mindful of being smart about it going to the the true next generation and moving away from that pattern that I described at the very beginning of this chat that we solve one problem, but we create a new one. And I think most of these legacy sites, we're, we're not really even solving the old problem, but we're creating new problems while we're not solving the old problem.
0: Okay, so there's loads I want to unpack there. The first question I have you on, on that is is um, you are talking about using bacteria to break down contaminants from the subsurface, which is essentially natural attenuation or, or um, biological de- degradation. That's been around for a number of decades now. How do you see the
1: future of that technology being used? The What we have available to us now that we have not in the past is the ability to understand the metagenomic makeup of a population. And we before it was more a black box of we think something's happening or we know something is happening, let's give it a carbon source and see what, what happens. And if it works, we just keep giving it a carbon source or an electron donor or electron receptor. Now we can customize our approach by understanding what are the bacteria there, uh knowing in the literature what is the what are the families or species of populations that are particularly amenable and what do those populations need. How can we best enhance them? So the ability to customize it, again, I made the reference earlier to the pandemic and the the rapidity with which we were able to develop a vaccine, which is revolutionary. Well, we have the ability to do the same thing now in attacking a particular contaminant. And there are a lot of contaminants that before we couldn't really go after. Uh, So the very, very recalcitrant compounds that we didn't really know how to go after them using attenuation with the only real attenuation we had available was dilution that now we can be much more specific and we can measure whether it's working or not. We can we can measure what's happening to those populations very, very specifically, uh, a lot more cost effectively than we could in the past.
0: One of the things we discussed before is that one of the biggest drivers up to this point has been the cost of remediation, how much it's going to cost to develop a land. It feels like from what you're discussing that there needs to be perhaps a shift in what the driver is of a remediation project. It's not just about cost, but it's actually more about having the the smallest carbon footprint and how having the smallest greater you know uh, unintended effects on the environment.
1: yes, I mean and oh, that
0: right
1: and again, likewise with what you what we just talked about with the natural attenuation the the desire to do green remediation, you know that that buzzword has been around their uh, extensive um, modeling capability was developed by several entities um, in the US. You've got the Army Corps of Engineer and Battelle uh, had developed a very robust set of tools for determining impact associated with remediation. Um, EPA has a set of tools that they've developed. What has not happened, though, is those are seen as optimizing tools after a remedy is selected, as opposed to being central to the decision-making process itself. The, kind of the, the linear process is, well, we're gonna select a remedy that will clean up this soil and groundwater to this concentration, which by the way, they almost never actually will, but that's still, they'll, they'll, the illusion is there that we're gonna pick this remedy. Now we're going to take that remedy and try to optimize it to make it a green remedy. what what my observation is is that these remedies aren't working anyway you aren't meeting these goals incorporate the the total set of metrics at the outset as part of your decision making process for your entire conceptual approach that cost we broaden the concept of cost that cost isn't measured just in dollars but cost is measured in the net impact across all of the environmental and social metrics and not just a the metric of we're going to try to meet this standard in the groundwater so it needs
0: to be more of a, a, a fluid approach to remedial options uh, appraisals and more of a, an assessment of what the net benefit of remediating a site would be uh, absolutely, absolutely things like co2 and, and, and-
1: and their concepts—it's like what when I discussed about how we evolved in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. As we refined the way we conceptualized our approaches, it wasn't taking brand new ideas that sprung out of Zeus's head suddenly. It's taking ideas that have been around. In this case, like uh, the the ability for nature to use nature, the necessity of considering climate change the necessity of being adaptive these concepts have been around what is not happening especially with these legacy sites is that the momentum on these sites is maintaining a 20th century or much earlier in the 20th century mindset of an industrial approach as opposed to a nature-centric approach in which we we say okay nature is going to take care of this problem for us if we can take the effort figure out which components of the ecosystem will work in our favor. We can approach this with minimizing the net climate change consequences, and we can do it the way nature works. Nature doesn't work with fixed boundaries. Nature works as it is the essence of adaptation because it's force and response. The adaptive approach is another buzzword that EPA has pushed. That is that should be not just a tool in which we implement a remedy, it should be the remedy of adaptation. Uh, We put a remedy as it's a living remedy that is using nature, it's optimizing our net environmental uh, benefits, and it is adaptive. So it's not coming in with some large fixed human infrastructure, except at the very last resort that we use the ability for the system to very quickly respond and we adapt based on as the data feeds back, we have the flexibility to adapt and move away from these large infrastructure approaches.
0: I'm going to finish with one final question. And there's no, it's not a coincidence that uh, this podcast is called Beyond Sustainability. Um, Your initiative, the Beyond Sustainability initiative was with the idea of promoting this kind of thinking about remediation and how we deal with contamination on sites and and contamination in the environment.
1: Um, Can you just give us an outline of what beyond sustainability means to you please? It's taking the concepts that we've discussed of a nature-centric pathway control risk management nature-centric optimizing the net environmental benefit minimizing the total resource expenditure and uh, adaptability. So it's bringing these concepts together, and the concepts have not sprung fresh. E- each of these, whether it be green remediation or utilizing natural attenuation or uh, adaptive management, these concepts are there. With the beyond sustainability is say uh, is pulling these together into a organizing principle that these all function together, we should change our entire concept of how we're approaching it and saying, these are our metrics. We want to optimize the use of nature, minimize or optimize the net environmental benefit. We want it to be adaptable. So that becomes our mantra. And it's not saying we've got to reach this standard. So we are going to choose a remedy that's going to reach this standard and that that pulls us into an inevitable large-scale infrastructure. Now, the cynic will say, well, this is impossible because the regulators won't agree to it. And I wholeheartedly disagree. I think the key to all of this, the beyond sustainability, it's not pie in the sky. That it is saying we've got the, the foundation to it is getting the right information in the right form to the right person at the right time. What has made this so difficult is there's very little incentive on a lot of these legacy projects to change w- what's happening. And, and why is that? Well, the, the, it's creating work for a lot of people. And rethinking and backing up and reconceptualizing to where we want to minimize the amount of work that's going, we're always going to protect the receptors, but we can do that and we can minimize this effort that's occurring out here by those principles I just described. And it is accomplished, it is accomplishable. What is coupled with these concepts is managing your information, taking your data and all this this wealth of information that is gathered on some of these sites for 50 years or so, and being very cognitive of how do we remove the transaction friction, moving this, in, this data, this information into actual intelligence so the decision makers can really see the consequences and you know it's backed up with data. So the, the beyond sustainability has the components that I described of, of optimizing nature, optimizing the net benefit, adaptation but then driving this all with highly robust knowledge management to where we're bringing these pieces together and it's not making things more confusing it's not just adding more metrics out there but it's putting into a cohesive story or narrative for the stakeholders and the amount of resources that we're wasting in the in just the u.s alone is staggering that we're achieving nothing and we are creating more ancillary problems, but the perception is, well, we've done good because we've pumped 45 million gallons of water this year. Well, no, you didn't clean 45 million gallons. 90% of that wasn't dirty until you pumped it and pulled it across the plume. Our metrics are flawed.
0: Brilliant. Billy, thank you very much for that discussion, and thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much and enjoyed this chat. Anytime you want to come back and chat some more, let's have at it. So that is the end
0: of this episode. My thanks to Billy Hall for uh, his discussion. It's been a fantastic discussion, really, really interesting. Loved learning about how remediation has changed over the course of the last few decades. And I think his visions on the the future of remediation are superb, considering the, the challenges the world faces today. Um, if you have any questions for Billy Hall or any of the Newfields team, please feel free to email me at podcasts at I'm more than happy to pass on your questions. Um, if you have any ideas about what you want for future podcast episodes, again, send me your ideas. I'm more than happy to try and make those happen. But for now, if you need any more information about Newfields, check our website, www.newfields.com. And as all that's left for me says, thank you very much for listening. And I hope you enjoy me the next episode. Bye for now.